Welcome to the True Crime Truckers Podcast. This podcast deals with true crime and subjects such as rape, murder, and sexual assault. This podcast may not be suitable for younger listeners, so listener discretion is advised. Humans love sports, whether it be soccer on an international level or the number one sport in the United States, football. People love watching two teams or two individuals in competition. But just like any other facet of life, there is triumph and tragedy in the sporting world. Tonight we will look at three tragic murders that occurred to sports stars. One, a former quarterback in the NFL. Two, a boxer in his prime and three, a young baseball star whose career was destined for the Hall of Fame. Tonight on the True Crime Truckers podcast, I bring you the stories of Steve McNair, Vernon Forrest, and Lindman Bostock. told us your name go a long way if you go out there and do great things you know they can you can hear the name McNair and they say oh yeah they, he's a great kid you know but if you out there making a bad name for yourself and then they hear the name McNair they like you know you don't want to mess with him you know you want to shy away from him and being that 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 that, that great name of McNair it's it gave us opportunity it gave us the the, the opportunity to go out and, and enjoy life, you know, enjoy good people and surround yourself with good people. Steve McNair was born in a small tin-roofed house in Mount Olive, Mississippi on February 14, 1973. He had four brothers, Fred, Jason, Michael, and Tim. He attended Mount Olive High School as a freshman in the fall of 1987 where he played football, baseball, and basketball, in addition to running track. As a junior, McNair led Mount Olive Pirates to the state championship. McNair also played free safety in high school, and in 1990 alone, he intercepted 15 passes, raising his career total to 30. The Seattle Mariners drafted him in the 35th round of the 1991 MLB Amateur Draft. McNair was initially offered a full scholarship to the University of Florida to play running back, but wanting to play quarterback, McNair chose Alcorn State University, a historically black college. In 1992, McNair threw for 3,541 yards and 29 touchdowns and ran in for 10 more scores. 
the Braves fashioned a record of 7-4. and four. McNair helped Alcorn State to another good year in 1993 as the Braves upped their record to 8-3, and three, while McNair threw for more than 3,000 yards and 30 touchdowns. He also was named first team All-SWAC for the third year in a row. In his senior season, McNair gained 6,281 combined yards along with 56 touchdowns. In the process, he surpassed more than a dozen records and was named an All-American. In addition, McNair won the Walter Payton Award as the top 1AA player and finished third in the Heisman Trophy voting. McNair set career records for football championship series with 14,496 passing yards, as well as the division record for a total offensive yards with 16,823 career yards. McNair's record for total offensive yards still stands. With the third overall pick in the 1995 NFL Draft, the Houston Oilers and new head coach Jeff Fisher selected McNair making him, at that time, the highest-drafted African-American quarterback in NFL history and signing him to a seven-year contract. McNair did not see his first action until the last two series of the fourth quarter in a November game versus the Cleveland Browns. Late in the season, he also appeared briefly against the Detroit Lions and New York Jets. In 1996, McNair remained a backup to Chris Chandler, until starting a game on December 8th in Week 15 against the Jacksonville Jaguars. McNair's first season as the Oilers starter in 1997, which was also the first year in Tennessee, resulted in an 8-8 record for the team, which played its home games at the Liberty Bowl in Memphis, Tennessee. McNair's 2,665 passing yards were the most for the Oilers in a season since Warren Moon in 1993, and his 13 interceptions were the fewest for a single season in franchise history. He also led the team in rushing touchdowns with 8 and ranked second behind running back Eddie George with 674 yards on the ground, the third highest total for a quarterback in NFL history. The team officially changed its name from the Oilers to the Titans for the 1999 season as they debuted a new stadium, Adelphia Coliseum. Early in the season, McNair was diagnosed with an inflamed disc following the Titans' 36-35 win over the Cincinnati Bengals and needed surgery. In his stead entered Neil O'Donnell, a veteran who had guided the Pittsburgh Steelers to a Super Bowl four years earlier. Over the next five games, O'Donnell led the Titans to a 4-1 record. McNair returned against the St. Louis Rams, and with McNair starting, Tennessee won seven of its last nine games. Good for a record of 13-3 in second place in the AFC Central. The Titans opened the playoffs at home against the Buffalo Bills in a wild card game, winning on the Music City Miracle and eventually advancing to Super Bowl thirty-four in a rematch with the Rams. On the second-to-last play, the Titans facing third down and five to go, McNair was hit by two Rams defenders, but somehow got away and completed a 16-yard pass to Kevin Dyson to gain a first down at the Rams' 10-yard line. On the final play of the game, McNair's pass to Dyson was complete, but Dyson was unable to break the plane of the goal line, giving the Rams the win. 
McNair signed a new six-year contract after the 1999 season worth $47 million. Over a 13-year NFL career, 11 with the Titans and 2 with the Ravens, McNair had a passing percentage of 60.1 for a total of 31,304 yards with 174 touchdowns and 119 interceptions and a QB rating of 82.8. He also rushed for 3,590 yards and 37 touchdowns. McNair was married to Michelle McNair from June 21, 1997 until his death. He split his time between a farm in Mississippi and Nashville, Tennessee. McNair had two sons by Michelle, Tyler and Trenton, and two sons, Stephen Luttrell McNair Jr. and Stephen O'Brien McNair, by two other women before they married. On July 4th of 2009, McNair was found dead from multiple gunshot wounds, along with the body of a young woman named Sasha Jenny Kazemi, in a condominium rented by McNair at 105 Lee Avenue in downtown Nashville. He was 36 years old. Kazemi and McNair were previously involved with each other romantically. The day of the shooting, text messages between the pair were exchanged, proclaiming their love to one another, in which Kazemi texted the victim, quote, you love me, in which McNair replied, quote, I love you, baby. There was also a conversation about financial issues where McNair transferred $2,000 to Kazemi, who claimed she was stressed and needed to pay her phone bill. McNair then offered to come over to check on her after she said her chest felt heavy. The night of his death, McNair put his children to bed, then at 11 p.m., he texted Kazemi, on my way. McNair had been shot twice in the body and twice in the head, with only one of the shots coming from closer than three feet. McNair was believed to have been asleep on the couch when the shooting occurred. After killing him, Kazemi sat on the couch beside him and shot herself in the temple. The bodies were discovered by McNair's friends, Wayne Neely and Robert Gaddy, who called 911. The Nashville police declared McNair's death a murder-suicide, with Kazemi as the perpetrator and McNair as the victim. The 9mm gun used was found under Kazemi's body, and later tests revealed trace evidence of gunpowder residue on her left hand. Kazemi had a worsening financial situation, and also suspected that McNair was in another extramarital relationship. McNair had been having an affair with the 20-year-old Kazemi in the months prior to their deaths. Two days before their deaths, Kazemi was pulled over in a black 2007 Cadillac Escalade in Nashville with McNair in the passenger seat and Vent Gordon, a chef at a restaurant McNair owned, in the back seat. The vehicle was registered in the names of both McNair and Kazemi, and she was charged with a DUI. McNair was not arrested, instead leaving in a taxi with Gordon, despite Kazemi repeatedly asking the arresting officers to tell McNair to come to the police car to talk to her. However, McNair later bailed Kazemi out of jail. Police later stated that after the release from jail, Kazemi purchased the gun from a convicted murderer she met while looking for a buyer for her Kia. The Titans held a two-day memorial at LP Field on July 8th and 9th of 2009, where fans could pay their last respects to McNair. Highlights from his career were played throughout each day, 
and fans were able to sign books that were later given to the McNair family. During the 2009 NFL season, every member of the Titans wore a commemorative number 9 sticker placed on the back of each helmet to honor McNair. Funeral services were held for McNair at the Reed Green Coliseum on the campus of the University of Southern Mississippi on July 11th. He was buried at Griffith Cemetery in Prentice, Mississippi. McNair died without a last will and testament, and his assets were frozen pending probate of his estate. In October 15th of 2010, it was reported that McNair's widow went to a Nashville judge and asked that at least a portion of the assets be unfrozen for his children's care and expenses until the estate matters were resolved in court. The judge agreed, and each of the four children received $500,000. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Uh, thank you, Smitty. First of all, I got to get a shameless plug. First, I got to thank God for giving me this victory. Shameless plug, but I got to thank Adidas and uh, uh, Ironhead Boxing, my sponsors. But I, I thought I, I thought it was a great performance. I wanted to, uh, I really wanted to beat him up and knock him out. I did beat him up. I didn't get a chance to knock him out. But I was, I was, I was really happy for my performance because I worked really, really hard for this fight. I really trained. I really, but he really motivated me. He made me get up at five o'clock in the morning and train. I trained from five o'clock in the morning to ten o'clock at night three times a day. Now, I really had to work really hard for this fight, and I'm glad it, it turned out the way it did. Vernon Forrest was born in Augusta, Georgia on February 12, 1971. He began boxing at the age of nine. After compiling an impressive 225 and 16 record as an amateur, he became the 1992 U.S. Junior Welterweight Champion and won silver at the 1991 World Amateur Boxing Championships, losing in the finals to Kostoya Tsitsu. Forrest was the first in his family to graduate from high school, receiving his diploma from Marquette Senior High School in Marquette, Michigan. Staying in Marquette, Forrest was on scholarship to Northern Michigan University, where he majored in business administration, through the U.S. Olympic Education Center, Forrest continued to train with the U.S. national team under head coach Al Mitchell. He was a member of the 1992 U.S. Olympic team during the Summer Olympics in Barcelona, Spain. He earned his Olympic position by beating Shane Mosley in the trials. After that fight, Forrest was the gold medal favorite heading into the tournament. He would have to fight Cuban fighter Hector Vinet a gold medalist, before reaching that goal. 
However, he was stricken with food poisoning a day before his first round bout and was beaten by Peter Richardson, who he'd previously defeated in a fight at the 1991 World Amateur Boxing Championships. En route to winning the silver medal, he returned home to Augusta, then moved to Las Vegas and made his professional debut on November 25, 1992. His professional debut in November of 1992, Forrest defeated Charles Hawkins. Through 1996, Forrest stopped 13 out of 15 opponents, and 5 were stopped in the first round. As the years went by, Forrest won a few minor title belts. In the year 2000, Forrest finally got his chance to fight a major title belt against Ralph Frank for the IBF welterweight title. Unfortunately for Forrest, however, a cut caused by an accidental headbutt ended the bout in round three and the fight was ruled a no contest. Forrest met Frank again in a rematch at Madison Square Garden on May 15, 2001 on a Felix Trinidad undercard. Forrest dominated his opponent and won the fight by a unanimous decision to claim his first major professional boxing title. In 2001, Forrest fought the WBC and lineal welterweight champion, Shane Mosley. Many considered Mosley to be the best fighter in the world, and he was the betting favorite to win the fight. Despite being the favorite, Mosley was dominated in this bout. Both fighters initially started strong, landing hard blows, but in the second round, Forrest had Mosley hurt early and knocked him down for the first time in his career. A series of strong punches would put him down yet again later in the round. With his dominant performance, Forrest was also awarded the Ring Magazine's welterweight title. Six months later, Forrest once again squared off against Mosley in a rematch. Despite a stronger performance from Mosley, Forrest won a clear-cut decision using his jab more effectively and through superior ring generalship. Forrest was now considered by many to be one of the top fighters in the world. In January of 2003, Forrest fought the WBA welterweight champion Ricardo Mayorga. Mayorga was mostly an unknown fringe contender from Nicaragua, and few gave him a chance to win against a significantly bigger and stronger Forrest. Mayorga shocked the world when he easily dominated Forrest, dropping him once in the first round and again in the third round. The referee would call off the fight after the second knockdown, as Forrest was visibly dazed and unable to get his footing. Forrest would rematch Mayorga six months later, losing again, this time by a majority decision. The bout was close and competitive, with Mayorga mostly chasing Forrest around the ring, while Forrest was content to fight from the outside. Forrest took two years off from fighting because of injuries. Forrest had complete reconstructive surgery on his left arm. He had three surgeries, two on his shoulder to repair a torn rotator cuff, and one on his left elbow to repair torn cartilage and nerve damage. In his first fight since losing twice to Mayorga, Forrest knocked out Sergio Rios in two rounds. After the fight against Rios, Forrest stopped Elko Garcia in the tenth round. Forrest won a controversial ten-round unanimous decision over Ike Corti, on August 5, 2006, in New York City. On July 28, 2007, Forrest won a unanimous decision against 
Carlos Baldomir in Tacoma, Washington, frequently firing off heavy right blows at Baldomir. After 12 rounds, Forrest won lopsided decisions to take the vacant WBC light middleweight title. On December 1st, 2007, at the Foxwood Resort Casino, he successfully defended his light middleweight title against Michelle Piccarillo, scoring an 11th round TKO. On June 7th, 2008, Forrest lost his title to the contender winner Sergio Mora via a 12-round majority decision. In the build-up to the fight, Forrest referred to Mora as, quote, the pretender and threatened to send him, quote, out on a stretcher. However, Mora succeeded in pulling off the upset victory. Forrest reclaimed his WBC 154-pound title on September 14, 2008, against Sergio Mora via unanimous decision. At about 11 p.m. on July 25, 2009, Forrest had stopped at a gas station in the Atlanta neighborhood of Mechanicsville. With him was his 11-year-old godson. As the boy went inside the gas station, Forrest went to the back of his car to add air to a low tire. As this occurred, a man robbed him at gunpoint and fled. Forrest, who was armed, went after the man and shots were exchanged. After a short distance, Forrest gave up the chase and began talking to a second man. It was this man that shot Forrest seven to eight times in the back. According to police, the shooter and the second person left the scene in a red Pontiac. Forrest died at the scene, and the death was ruled a homicide. Atlanta police would arrest and later charge 25-year-old Jaquante Cruz, 20-year-old Demario Ware, and 30-year-old Charmin Sinkfield for his murder. It is believed that Sinkfield was the shooter, Ware was the robber, and Cruz was the driver. Cruz and Ware are serving life sentences, and on October 28, 2016, Charmin Sinkfield was sentenced to life without parole. take money and I know I'm not doing well, especially that type of money that I'm receiving. Uh, I don't feel like I gave Mr. Autry uh, a full month's work. If I can't perform to my capability, then I don't think I deserve the money. Lindman Bostock was born in Birmingham, Alabama on November 22, 1950. He was the son of Annie Pearl Bostock and Lindman Bostock Sr., a Negro Leagues professional baseball star from 1938 to 1954 as a first baseman. Pearl and Bostock Sr. split when Bostock Jr. was a young child, with Pearl relocating with her son first to Gary, Indiana in 1954, and in 1958 the two again relocated, this time to Los Angeles. The younger Bostock remained estranged from his father for the remainder of his life, feeling that his father had abandoned him. 
At one point during his youth, Bostock's baseball glove was stolen. With his mother unable to afford to purchase another, he had to use a glove given to him by a friend of the family. However, the donated glove was for a left-handed fielder. Bostock's discomfort in catching fly balls with the hand he was unaccustomed to using led him to begin making basket catches at that time. The habit stayed with him, and he frequently made basket catches of fly balls for the remainder of his life. Bostock played baseball at Manual Arts High School in Los Angeles, and then attended San Fernando Valley State College, which is now California State University at Northridge. It was there that he met Euvene Brooks, who would become his wife. Bostock did not play baseball during his first two years of college, choosing instead to become involved in student activism. Nonetheless, he was selected in the 1970 amateur draft by the St. Louis Cardinals. Bob Heigart, Bostock's college coach at Cal State Northridge, said, quote, What you see is what you got from Lindman. There was nothing hidden about Lindman. He wore his heart on his sleeve, unquote. Bostock chose not to sign, stayed in college, and began playing baseball for Coach Heigert and the Matadors. He was an all-conference player in the California Collegiate Athletic Association in both of his seasons at San Fernando Valley, hitting 344 as a junior and 296 as a senior, leading the Matadors to second-place finish in the Division II College World Series in 1972. He was selected by the Twins in the 26th round, 596th overall, of the 1972 Amateur Draft, and decided to turn professional, just 15 credits short of finishing his bachelor's degree. Bostock's minor league stops were with the Class A Charlotte Twins in 1972, the Class AA Orlando Twins in 1973, and the Class AAA Tacoma Twins in 1974. His batting averages for those years were 294, 313, and 333, respectively. In 1975, he was hitting 391 after 22 games and 92 at bats with Tacoma when the Minnesota Twins called him up. Bostock was promoted to the major leagues in April of 1975, making his major league debut on April 8th when he was 1-for-4 with two walks and three runs scored in an 11-4 Twins win over the Texas Rangers. For the season, he batted 282 in 98 games for Minnesota and 391 in 22 games for the Tacoma Twins in the Pacific Coast League. A fine defensive center fielder, Bostock finished 4th in a tight American League batting race in 1976, his first full season in the majors. He hit 323, finishing behind Kansas City Chiefs Royal George Brett, Hal McCree, and teammate Rod Carew. In 1977, Bostock's 336 batting average was second only to the 388 of Carew. On May 25th, Bostock collected 12 putouts in the second game of a doubleheader against the Boston Red Sox, tying the major league mark for putouts by an outfielder, which had been set by Earl Clark of the Boston Braves in 1929. Bostock had a total of 17 putouts in the doubleheader, which set an American League record for outfielders. After the 1977 season ended, Bostock became one of baseball's earliest big-money free agents and signed with the California Angels, owned by Gene Autry. 
Bostock had made $20,000 with the Twins in 1977 and signed a $2.3 million six-year contract with the Angels. The Twins, Padres, and Yankees all had tried to sign Bostock. Almost immediately, Bostock donated $10,000 to a church in his native Birmingham, Alabama to rebuild its Sunday school. The 1978 season started off poorly for Bostock. He batted 150 for the month of April, and Bostock met with the team's management and attempted to return his April salary, saying he had not earned it. The team refused, so Bostock announced he would donate his April salary to charity. Thousands of requests came in for the money, and Bostock reviewed each one of them, trying to determine who needed it the most. After his poor April, Bostock hit 404 in June and was hitting 296 when he was killed in September. As the 1978 season neared its conclusion, Bostock was leading the Angels in batting with a week remaining in the season. He went 2-for-4 with a walk in his final game, a Saturday afternoon game against the White Sox in Chicago, to raise his season average to 296. In his four-year season career, Bostock was a 311 career hitter with a 365 OBP with 23 home runs, 102 doubles, 30 triples, 45 stolen bases, and 250 RBIs in 526 games. A contact hitter, he had 171 career walks against 174 career strikeouts and a 988 fielding percentage playing all three outfield positions with the majority in center field. Following the game at Kamensky Park, as he regularly did when in Chicago, Bostock visited his Uncle Thomas Turner in nearby Gary, Indiana. After eating a meal with a group of relatives at Turner's home, Bostock and his uncle went to visit Joan Hawkins, a woman whom Bostock had tutored as a teenager, but had not seen for several years. After the visit, Turner agreed to give Hawkins and her sister, Barbara Smith, a ride to their cousin's house. Turner drove his vehicle with Hawkins seated in the front passenger seat, and Bostock and Barbara Smith rode in the vehicle's back seat. Barbara Smith had been living with Hawkins while estranged from her husband, Leonard Smith. Unbeknownst to the group, Leonard Smith was outside Hawkins' home in his car and observed the group's departure in Turner's car. According to Leonard Smith, his wife was frequently unfaithful to him, and though he did not know Bostock, he later said upon seeing Bostock get into the back seat of Turner's vehicle with his wife, he concluded the two were having an affair. In fact, however, Bostock had only met the woman 20 minutes previously when he and his uncle had arrived at Hawkins' home. At 10.40 p.m., as Turner's vehicle was stopped at a traffic signal in the intersection of 5th and Jackson Street, Leonard Smith's car pulled up alongside them. Leonard Smith leaned out of his vehicle and fired one blast of a 410 caliber shotgun into the backseat of Turner's car, where Bostock and Barbara Smith were seated. Leonard Smith said that his lethal wrath was intended for his estranged wife, However, Bostock was seated between Barbara Smith and the position from which Leonard Smith was firing. Instead of striking her, the blast caught Bostock squarely in the right temple. At age 27, he died two hours later at a Gary hospital. Barbara Smith was hospitalized in fair condition with pellet wounds to her face. Smith was tried twice for murder, with his lawyers arguing that Barbara Smith's alleged infidelity had driven him insane. 
The first trial resulted in a hung jury. In the second trial, Smith was found not guilty by reason of insanity and was committed for psychiatric treatment. Within seven months, he was deemed no longer mentally ill by his psychiatrist and released. Including his time in jail and during the trial, Smith's time in custody amounted to 21 months. In the aftermath of Smith's case, the legislature in Indiana changed the state's insanity laws. After the change, a person found to be insane at the time of a commission of a crime could still be found legally guilty and thus could be sent to prison if and when he or she was released from psychiatric treatment. Leonard Smith returned to Gary, Indiana, where he resided for the remainder of his life, moving in his later years in a high-rise apartment building for senior citizens. After his 1980 release from custody, he never again ran afoul of the law, and he declined all requests to comment publicly about the killing of Bostock. In 2010, Smith died of natural causes at the age of 64. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Trucker Podcast Group. You can also join Age of Radio's Facebook group at Addicted to Podcasting. This is a group dedicated to the show hosts and fans of Age of Radio shows. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org slash true crime truckers slash there you can browse the bazaar where you can purchase items from our wonderful sponsors as well as browse other shows on the age of radio syndicate also if you'd like to donate to the show and get yourself a podcast sticker go to www.patreon.com slash true crime truckers podcast you can also find me on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks with another case to present. So until then, stay safe.